This is the Dividend Health Checkup. Hi, I'm DGI Guy, and this is the Dividend Health Checkup. Along with Dr. Dividend, we are bringing you a weekly show that is dedicated to learning as much as we possibly can from investors who are primarily focused in the dividend investing space. This week's article comes to us from myself. I try and not do this very often just because it seems very self-promoting. But despite me being the author, it's a good article and I chose it for a reason. So the article is about Target which for disclosure purposes, I own shares of Target. And from time to time, I like to take a step back and review my holdings from a longer term perspective to make sure that things are still looking in line with what I had originally thought and where expectations are. So the reason I chose this article is it provides a good breakdown of the quantitative metrics that I review and the format that I review each of those metrics in. And I think it's a good process that some folks might be able to learn from. So I start off looking at 10-year history of data. And from there, I average the first three years and compare that number to the average of the last three years. And that's fiscal years. In the target example, that's going to be 2006 to 2008 is kind of period one. And then 2013 to 2015 is period two. And again, those are fiscal years. So the basic idea is that If you watch things from quarter to quarter, you can kind of miss out on longer-term trends, and that longer-term trend is a little more important than what you might be able to see quarter to quarter. So over 10 years, you should see various changes in the economy as well as the management team, and that should translate into the numbers that you are reviewing. And so hopefully all of the metrics, if you've selected well, will be trending upward. And if not, it's a good way to highlight some longer-term trends that might save you from some bad decisions. So check it out. It's a quick read. If you need the spreadsheet that I use, just reach out to us at dividendhealthcheckup at gmail.com. But for now, let's move on to the interview. Here's Dr. Dividend. Today we have on the podcast, Sure Dividend. Sure Dividend is the Seeking Alpha name where you can find a lot of wonderful articles and Sure Dividend's real name is Ben Reynolds. Ben, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good. It's uh, just a wonderful day in Texas. I know that you're a little bit east of me in in Houston. Hopefully the humidity is not killing you over there just yet. Not today. It's beautiful here as well. Now, Ben, I know uh, this is wonderful to have you on because you are one of our younger dividend growth-focused guests. So I want to know a little bit about your background, you know, both from personally and in an investment perspective. How did you get to this point? Well, for me, um, my, uh, I guess, love affair or my passion for investing started uh, in college. I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, and I ended up taking finance courses. And there was a course on behavioral errors and just uh, mispricings in the market, and it absolutely fascinated me. And from there, I've ravenously read everything I can on investing, and it's really been a passion for me. So that's where it all started. Now, 
back in college, and again, you're not that old. You're still a young whippersnapper compared to me. But back in college, did they have courses on how to analyze investments, or was it more of a, for lack of a better term, philosophical thought of economics? A lot of it was philosophical, but the one class that inspired me was more hands-on and real world. So you were actually breaking down balance sheets and income statements in this one course? You know, I don't think we were actually breaking down balance sheets. It was more of um, looking at where the errors in market pricing happen and then giving real examples of that. Okay. So if you can remember back then, do you do you recall any of those examples that really stood out and what you know, what drew you to say, God, that would be a good investment if I wasn't a poor college kid eating ramen. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's kind of interesting because you can't really take advantage of what you're learning in college because it's not like you have a bunch of money floating around. Um, but I, to answer your question, I actually can't remember any specifics other than they talked about some, some things like momentum effect, value effect, uh, January effect, which I think is kind of strange but just different behavioral errors. And it really made me think about how what we think and what that does to pricing. And from there, uh, really my first focus on investing was value investing more than dividend investing. Kind of delve into that a little bit deeper. And then how did you transition over to having dividends be a core component to what stocks you're looking at? Right. So I I started, um, I read, like I said, I read a lot on value investing in particular. And as I continued to research, for me, it was never about like, I'm a value investor and that's all I'm going to focus on. I, I wanted to go beyond that. And value was the first thing I saw that I thought really worked. And then from there, I looked at different types of quantitative investing, like momentum. And I just looked at all the different things that were working in investing and then looking at things like well, how much does it cost to do this? You know, what are the fees you pay? How many trades do you have to make? Because that's, people don't look at that enough, I think, in investing, and it really makes a big difference in performance. And when I looked at all the facts, dividend investing and dividend growth investing in particular appears to have an advantage over other types of investing for someone who's, I should say that, I think if you're looking purely at returns, and you're going to spend you know, 10, 12 hours a day on it every day, value investing might have an advantage in total return. But for if you factor in risk and not spending 12 hours a day researching micro cap stocks, I think dividend growth investing offers a superior risk return situation. Okay. And the moniker Shore Dividend, how long have you been – using that website, SureDividend.com, and is this your primary occupation, or is there something else that you do as well? Sure Dividend is my primary occupation. It's what I do every day, and I started it in at the very end of March 2014. Okay, and I've got to ask, when did you graduate college? Um trying to think back. <laughs> it's kind of bad. I don't know the exact year. I want to say 2011. Okay. So for those uh, those few years between graduating college and starting up Shore Dividend, what were you doing then? 
I had a variety of different jobs. I worked uh, in a sourcing company where I was importing hunting and fishing goods from China. I worked uh, in sales in a warehouse. Uh, I worked in a startup company that does heated jackets. And then I got my, uh, became a registered investment advisor. And I was actually going to start my own investment advisory firm. And I realized that I want to reach as many people as I can and at as low a price point as possible. And so that's when I kind of scrapped my plans to be an investment advisor and went with a more online route. So focusing on that investment advisory track, did you ever have any clients under management or you I, stopped right before that and then started short dividend? I actually stopped right before that. Where I okay. had people lined up and then I decided that it wasn't what I wanted to do. All right. So if you can go back those few years, because I've asked other uh, advisors that have been guests on the show, financial planners, registered investment advisors, if you can remember being around those people in the industry, you know, what did those other advisors wish clients would know before walking in to talk to them for the first time? What would other advisors want clients to know? Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because I'm guessing you had some mentors along the way as you were going through this process, and they were probably giving you advice about the industry. You know, what was the one thing that they would tell you in terms of before a client sat down with you? What did you wish? You know, I wish that this client would have known X. What is that X that they were talking about? Well, I think you, you always want your client to understand the risks they're taking and understand that, you know, your investments are going to go up and down in value and how much of that can you handle and how to best gauge that. Okay. And what were some of the biggest misconceptions that people had about financial planners and investment advisors? Well, that's a, that's a tough question. I'm, you know, I, just like with any field where uh, there's an asymmetry in information, people, I think, put too much faith in their investment advisor or financial planner. And if things, you know, oh, your your stocks didn't go up this year, they might think that that's the advisor's fault and not realize that that's going to happen. That's a natural course of events. Got it. Now, you know, when I went over to your website on uh, SureDividend.com, you very boldly have the eight rules that you follow. So let's, uh, do you mind going over those eight rules right now? Absolutely. Let's, let's do it. All right. So I will let you take the lead in terms of how did you, how did you come down to, well, a relatively simple number of eight? You know, it's not as low as three or five, but you gotta, you gotta get it down to something because a hundred rules would be way too many. Um, what, what got you down to these eight rules and kept that discipline for you? Well, I wanted to make it as simple as possible without making it too simple. And I didn't have a number in mind when I was creating this, I wanted to look for, like I had talked about before, what works. And there's five buy rules. Those are the first five rules. And that's really the, the quantitative framework, how I rank dividend stocks. And those five rules are really the main focus of, of sure dividend and how to pick 
good dividend growth stocks trading at fair, better prices. Um, okay. And so, but yeah, so let's say, sorry, I don't, <laughs> there was no plan for eight or it could have been nine if I, or seven. It just, eight was what it became. I didn't set out beforehand. Like I need to find eight specific rules. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's, uh, let's, let's start from the top. What's, uh, what's rule number one? Rule number one is the quality rule and that I have a common sense idea for each one. And it's the idea is to invest in high quality businesses that have a proven long-term record of stability, growth, and profitability. And there's, there's really no reason to own a mediocre business when you can own a great business. Um, and the specific rule for that is to only invest in businesses with 25 or more years of dividend payments without a reduction. So that's, that includes dividend aristocrats, but it's slightly more inclusive because it also includes stocks that have frozen their dividend for a year. So, you know, if a, a company paid a dollar a year in dividends and then the next year it only paid a dollar, it didn't raise, it's still on the list. But it, it cuts out any companies that have cut dividends or don't have a very long track record of success. Okay. And just to, I mean, people that are on Seeking Alpha, especially in the dividend and income section, usually know of the uh, the CCC list that David Fish compiles every month. And to make a distinction between that and the dividend aristocrats, the aristocrats is just a payment of dividends for 25 years or more. Is that correct? Uh, it's increasing payments for 25 or plus years in a row. Okay. So what... David Fish calls the champions is the same as the aristocrats. I guess the champions are a little bit more broad because it goes past the S&P 500 and could include some smaller companies. Correct. Okay. So if you have a larger list and, you know, a, a company could freeze a dividend because of macroeconomic issues, I'm thinking 2008, 2009, there might have been an oil company or two or that that froze their dividend just because of the economic factors where do you find those where do you find that larger list these days well it's it's from a variety of different sources you know you look at the dividend aristocrats uh dividend achievers and you research those individually really it's it's uh, something i put together myself that takes quite a bit of research there's no quick quick way to find all of them but I mean, I mean, the David Fish CCC list is obviously an excellent place to look as well. Okay. So, all right. So we got the 25 years of dividends, uh, preferably growing each year, but at least possible suspension of no of zero increase. Obviously, not cutting a dividend. Right. Let's go. What's rule number two? Rule number two is the bargain rule, and that's the idea that. Just to invest in businesses that pay you the most dividends so you can increase your dividend income. Uh, all things being equal, I prefer a dividend yield of 5% to one of 2%, which I don't think anyone would argue with. And the uh, financial rule for that is I rank stocks by dividend yield. That's one of the ranking factors. So like I said, all things being equal, if a stock has a higher dividend yield, that's better than a stock with a lower dividend yield. Makes sense. Okay. Um, it's very straightforward, but it's it's a, just a ranking signal. So understand, but, it, but what's wonderful about it is that you're keeping yourself disciplined, which I know for me emotions time can get the best of me at times. So you know, I that's why I enjoy doing these interviews is that hearing other people's ideas and you know 
everyone's got their foibles, uh, even outside of investing, but it seems like you, you're able at such a young age to keep the discipline here. So let's go on to rule number three. Absolutely. Uh, rule three is the safety rule. And the idea behind that is the higher the payout ratio, the the less safe it is, all things being equal. You know, if a stock has a 95% payout ratio, one little hiccup and they're going to have to cut their dividend. Whereas a stock with a 30% payout ratio, earnings can fall 50% and their dividend still covered. Uh, and the, the ranking signal for that is to rank stocks by their payout ratio. And and it's an interesting point to look at the, the interplay between high yield and low payout ratio. Whenever you can find a stock that has a, a reasonably high yield and a low payout ratio, you're looking at really a value play. So it's a, a really good thing to look for. And there's there's been some academic studies on high yield, low payout ratio stocks, and they tend to they have historically performed very well. So I've got two questions for you on on this comment. Now you mentioned in terms of the payout ratio, do you have a little bit of leeway depending upon the industry that the stock is in? And I mean, if it's a, well, master limited partnerships haven't been around for 25 years and the longest standing one, Kinder Morgan, just cut its dividends. So you're pretty much going to eliminate all MLPs, but there can be utilities and utilities have a relatively high payout ratio. Um, telecommunication companies, I'm thinking of AT&T, can have a relatively high payout ratio. Do you bend the rules without breaking them by giving some slack to those versus an Archer Daniels Midland, which is much more cyclical and being a commodity? That's a That's a very good question. And I don't bend or break the rules, but since there's there's five different key ranking factors for each stock. So as an example, Verizon has a high payout ratio, but it also ranks very highly using the eight rules of dividend investing because it does so well on its other metrics that it kind of offsets it. So like a utility, uh, if it has a high yield and very low stock price volatility, which we'll come to in a little bit, it's going to rank well, even if it has a high payout ratio. I see. And, you know, you you were talking about the research saying, you know, finding those high yield, low payout uh, ratio companies. Can you give our audience an idea of how you're defining high yield and how you're defining low payout? Because when I've looked at these research studies, I can't seem to find any number or ranges in terms of is it 40% that's a low payout ratio? Is it 60% that's a low payout ratio? They they never seem to define that, and that becomes extremely frustrating on my end. I completely agree. It's very nebulous. It's what's high, what's low. And the way they generally do it is they break the market into deciles or quintiles. So they'll look at the top 10% or the top 20%. And for yield in general... High, I I think of high as 3% or above in today's market. You know, if you went back to 1950, that would probably be low. But in today's market, I think 3% or above is generally high. And Ben, what do you consider then a low payout ratio? For me, a low payout ratio is going to be, I would say, under 35% would be low for sure. And, you know, 40% or under still... Fairly conservative, fairly safe, but certainly under 35% would be low. 
Okay. So I think we beat that that rule to death. Let's go on to the next one here for you. All right. Rule number four is the growth rule. Just as simple as it can be, a stock that's growing is better than a stock that's not growing. Um, and the common sense idea is to invest in businesses with a history of solid growth. Uh, if a business has maintained a high growth rate for a decade, they're probably there's a good chance they're going to continue to do so in the future. And the the financial rule for this is to rank stocks by their uh, expected earnings per share growth rate. And you hear the word expected, that's not a historical exact item. And I base expected earnings on a mix of historical earnings. So if, say, Coca-Cola has grown its earnings per share at 7% a year over the last decade, you'd be probably be wrong to say, oh, they're going to grow their earnings at 16% a year going forward. That wouldn't make any sense. So you use the historical number as a a guide. And I really only change that if there's a a specific reason to. For instance, if a a company's cyclical and they've had a lot of issues or something of that nature, you might expect earnings to be higher going forward or lower. Makes sense. All right. So on to the next rule then. All right. Uh, Rule number five is the peace of mind rule. And the idea behind it is to look for businesses that people invest in during recessions and times of panic. I guess you'd call it blue chip or safety businesses. Uh, These businesses will probably have a relatively stable stock price. And the financial rule behind that is to rank stocks by their long-term volatility and beta. And I use 10 years of historical data for my ranking. So if a stock gets into trouble in any one specific year and its stock price jumps around, that won't say like, oh, this stock is horribly high volatility. I use a longer time frame to look at that. Um, and to talk about that rule a little more, there's there's pretty good evidence that low volatility stocks and low beta stocks have outperformed the market over the last 20 or so years. And But it's not all the time. They tend to outperform during bear markets and sideways markets, but during a strong bull market, they're going to underperform underperform by a significant margin. And you can see an example of that in the late 90s internet bubble. And then I would say more recently, uh, we were probably in a bubble or near it, especially if you look at like the FANG stocks or Facebook, Amazon, Google, things like that. They're really outperforming, but in a bear market, they probably won't. But that would also bring up an interesting point that if they're underperforming, they're quote-unquote underperforming by stock market standards, but they're still doing business as usual, then they could become accidental high yielders from a historical basis. Right. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, The idea is basically to look for businesses that are going to keep growing regardless of what's happening in the overall market. And utilities, again, are a good example of businesses that historically have exceptionally low stock price standard deviations because they're so heavily regulated and they're, you know, people need electricity or they need gas. So their products in such demand that there's not a lot of variability in their stock price or their earnings. Got it. Okay. So now you said the last three rules are a little bit different from the first five. So give us some context and then let's go into rule six, seven and eight here. Sure. Um, Rules six and seven are about when to sell, and that's a kind of a contentious topic, and I I think an interesting one that doesn't get enough coverage. And then rule eight is about portfolio diversification, how many stocks to hold and 
you know, basically don't put all your eggs in one basket. All right. Well, wait, you're going to jump, you're going to jump the gun on me here. So, um, I, I get to these questions a little bit later. So I am going to purposely hold off on, uh, rule six and seven. Okay. And let's get back to, you know, the first five rules are what I call the metrics or what I've been explaining as metrics and asking people to see what they like to look at to determine, uh, what stocks they're interested in. And I think you did a wonderful explanation on that. So using those metrics, using your five rules, you know, your how big is your universe that you look at amongst the thousands and thousands of companies that are out there? The universe is 180 stocks right now. It might be 179. 179, 180. It was about 185 a few months ago. And just there's been some dividend cuts. But the the first rule of looking only at businesses with 25 plus years of dividends without a reduction drastically reduces the universe and i think that's the most important rule and the it's the most critical i think because it it really prevents a lot of mistakes okay and you know as you you've now whittled down to these 180 stocks where do you start what are some of your favorite resources or websites to start delving into looking at these stocks uh at a deeper level absolutely um well just to get quick financial data i like finviz they have a lot of good visualizing tools and just good data uh but beyond that i like i read annual reports quarterly reports company presentations i'll look at an analysis on seeking alpha on occasion, and I will also look at Value Line, which I really like. I think Value Line is probably the best you can do for a fairly quick overview of a company to really get down to how it's done historically and what they're up to now. Okay. If you don't mind singling out uh, a couple stocks for us to talk about on this podcast, what looks interesting by your five rules these days. Sure. And, ju- and just to back up uh, just a bit, I think your listeners would be interested in knowing. Um, for people in the United States that have a library card, you can, in most libraries, you can access Value Line for free and you can access it from your house. And without that, it's extremely expensive. Um, but then moving forward to what stocks look interesting today, a couple of my favorites right now that rank highly are uh, Cummins, which is the diesel engine leader, uh, Archer's Daniels Midland, and I've liked Walmart for quite a while as well, although that's slowly falling in the rankings as its price rises again. Oh, see, and I just pulled out Archer Daniels just out of nowhere, not knowing that you were going to bring it up again. So <laughs> it's kind of interesting how that worked. I was I was thinking that when you said it. <laughs> so let's use. Um, all right, let's use Cummins. Uh, it is an industrial stock. Uh, it makes natural gas and diesel engines. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. Uh, I know it went through quite a downturn over the last roughly 12 months, almost got cut in half, and now it's made a little bit of a resurgence, even though they're saying that 2016 guidance is going to be flat at best. So, as you look through these metrics, kind of take a step-by-step in terms of why you find this interesting. Absolutely. Well, the first thing that jumps out about Cummins is that its stock price, like you said, is down by half, which 
you know, there's either horrible problems at the business or it's undervalued. And when you think about, okay, their guidance is for basically flat earnings, does that, is that really a good reason for the company to be worth half as much as it was a year ago? I don't think so. And if you look at their long-term growth rates, they're, this is a company that has historically grown its earnings per share at 10% plus a year. And they certainly have trouble right now. We're looking at a growth slowdown over a lot of the emerging markets. We've got the low oil prices, which are affecting sales. And, you know, the global economy is really starting to struggle. And that's why I think Cummins is struggling right now. But if you take a longer term perspective and say 5, 10, 15 years from now, Cummins will very likely be much bigger than it is today, just as 10 years ago it was much smaller than it is today. It's it's in temporary trouble, very likely to continue growing over the long run. And that's really what I look for. And then on top of all that, it's got a high dividend yield, nearly 4%. Uh, The payout ratio is fairly low, under 50%. It's very volatile stock. That's one place where it doesn't rank well. But other than that, it ranks very well on all metrics. It's funny. You never, um, Ben, you never mentioned Debt to equity or just debt overall as being a metric, is that kind of one of those hidden factors that you don't really express but you do take a look at or you're not concerned about that? I I absolutely take a look at it, but debt to equity can be a very misleading metric. A business like uh, Clorox comes to mind. They have an enormously high debt to equity ratio, and if you look at that, you think they're on the verge of bankruptcy, but their interest coverage ratio is very safe. Their cash flows are extremely stable. They're at no risk of bankruptcy. I mean, so to me, that's a metric I don't look at, but I do look at total debt when I am qualitatively analyzing a company. And, you know, if a company has an enormous debt burden and their business is in trouble, then you're looking at some issues where you're probably going to see a dividend cut. Okay. So, I think we're going to jump to rule number eight, which I believe you said was your portfolio diversification. Correct. Okay. So you can either, I'm guessing what you hold personally is what you put out on your website or at least a slight variation thereof, but pretty dang close. How many positions do you hold or how many positions do you recommend someone holds? I I recommend and I, I do follow Exactly. I'd say 95% of what I say. I When I say 95%, all but one of the stocks that I hold have been in the top 10, and the one that hasn't has been in like the top 12 of my rankings. Okay. So I do exactly what I tell other people to do, and I think if I didn't, that would not be good. Because <laughs> what, what am I telling people to do if I'm not following my own advice? Um, but to get to the question, I recommend having 20-plus stocks. I'd say a good range is 20 on the low end and then up to where you can comfortably manage your portfolio. You know, I don't, I think 200 stocks would be far too many. If I had to put a range, I'd say somewhere between 20 and 50, but there, that's going to be a different number for everyone just based on the amount of time it takes you to look up, you know, check up on the stocks you own. Uh, but tw- the reason I go with 20 is because that's a number where you're getting pretty much all the benefits of diversification without owning 300 stocks and just basically owning the market. Now, do you diversify those 
20 stocks and we'll just say 20 or 25, however many you have, do you try and keep it as 5% per position? Are you looking at it from how many stocks are in a certain industry? Are you, are you looking at it by how much income am I getting from this one stock? What's your criteria in terms of how much to hold per position? For me personally, I don't look at industry. I don't have like a specific rule. Like I need 26% of my portfolio in oil and gas. I look at it more as, you know, like kind of in a common sense way, I wouldn't want to have all my portfolio in oil and gas stocks because it's cyclical and that's just dangerous. But I don't have a hard and fast rule at the same time. I just look for reasonable diversification where I'm in a lot of different sectors and no one position is going to be a huge percent of the portfolio. And again, I don't have a specific rule on never have a position be X percent of your portfolio, but off the top of my head, I wouldn't want anything to be more than 10 or 15% for sure. And I'd, I'd look to have it when I'm purchasing these stocks, I'm looking to make it as equally weighted as possible without doing a ton of transactions and running up my transaction costs. Okay. So what officially does rule number eight say? Because I think we just beat around the bush on that. <laughs> rule number eight, it isn't, um, it's only a rule that isn't very quantitative. It says to build a diversified portfolio over time to uh, and basically to buy the highest ranked stock, which you own the least each month when you're building your portfolio. So basically buy the best investment available at the time that you don't already own while you're building your portfolio. So it's more of a process than a strict rule like the other ones are. I want to thank Ben for being part of the show this week. And of course, he'll be back next week for the part two. I'm going to keep my comments to myself for now and save those for next week. Please join us in the conversation by finding the show notes published by Dr. Dividend on SeekingAlpha.com. Those will come on Thursday. And until next week, happy investing. conversations on this podcast are intended as entertainment and not intended to represent individual investment advice. The majority of contributors on this podcast are not licensed financial advisors, so please do your own research and do not buy or sell stocks based primarily on what you've heard today.